Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department, let's see more. Hello, I'm Conor Faulkner and this is Driving Life. In this episode, I talk to Tommy Gorman, late of RTE. Tommy spent many years as one of our best-known and best-loved broadcasters. From the west of Ireland, he became RTE's Europe correspondent for 12 years, before spending a long time as Northern editor. He's had a great view of history, and he's been our witness to it. He spent a long time successfully battling cancer, but it's never held him back, and now he's enjoying life to the full. Before we get going, I'd like to take a moment to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Doro Mobile Phones and Expressway Buses. Two great companies in very different areas. They're very good to support us, so thank you very much. Don't forget to check out earlier episodes and other chats. It's all there on seniortimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. So now let's go and meet Tommy Gorman. Um, Hello, Tommy Gorman. It is terrific to see you. Nice to see you as well. Um, yeah, nice to, be, nice to be above ground. The pair of us, nice to, nice to be reconnect. above ground. The pair of us is right, mm. um, and 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 in nice parts of it too, because um, you're in France at the moment. Yeah, I'm in a, a little place called uh, Saint Nexan. It's a little village outside Bergerac. Uh, we've been coming here for oh, the guts of twenty years, and it's a it's a good place to recharge. It reminds me of uh, Leitrim in the sun. Leitrim in the sun. Well, that's a nice combination. Um, and of course, you are a West of Ireland man, Tommy. You're a Sligo man. I say originally, but um, that never changed. You're very much a West of Ireland man, aren't you? Oh, I'm 100% uh, rooted in Sligo. Sligo is my home place. Uh, we live uh, between, uh, uh, well, very near Strandhill uh, by the sea, about five very miles nice. from Sligo in a place called Lachine. Beautiful part of the world. Say, yeah, my, that, my, has, that has been home since um, since 1984. Uh, and uh, I was actually brought up beside the Markovich Park on Cairns Road in Sligo. So uh, Sligo nice. always be home. Uh, always be home. So um, wh- why the hankering for journalism, Tommy? Because it came along very early, didn't it? You were writing for the Western people as a, as a young man. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I suppose I liked uh, English uh, and and history uh, at mm-hmm. school, uh, and I had a a priest who encouraged me in, in Summerhill who had an interest in journalism himself, and he encouraged me to to fire ahead uh, and take an interest in journalism. And I think when I was accepted for the school of journalism in in Rathmines uh, immediately after secondary school, it was a two year course, and away yeah. you went after that. Um, in some ways, I, I regret that there wasn't, say, a period where you went for maybe the summer to London or the summer to New York. Uh, but it was a very, very fast course. In the first summer, you, you, you got a placement. We got I got a placement with the Sligo champion. Yeah. And then after year two, you were out and you were in the labour market. And I started working with a new newspaper then called the Western Journal. Uh, and I never really stopped. I worked. Yeah. I worked for three and a half years with a man called John Healy and Jim McGuire. They were great teachers. Oh, John Healy would have been well known. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, 
yeah, lots, lots of people would remember no one shouted stop and our 19 acres. Uh, Healy was a great champion of the West of Ireland, as indeed was Jim McGuire. Uh, and um, then I joined RTE in 1980 and I worked with them for 41 years. 41 years. Well, listen, I know myself uh, how easily it can happen. You lose concentration for the briefest of moments and, and 41 years has gone by. Um, and, you know, RTE must have felt like a big break. Uh, at the time, did it? Because I mean, it's the national airwaves, and yeah, it, it was. It was certainly stepping up a gear, and in some respects, it was changing direction because it was radio and television, and most of our training in those days was in for print journalism. Uh, so, stepping onto the national stage with RTE, yeah, certainly it was a big challenge having to learn the language of radio and television. So I worked for. Uh, I was fortunate in that. I was based as a correspondent in the Northwest. So it did, was did you replace um, Jim Jim Fahey? Was that right? Was he was he your Yeah, brief? no, J Jim was the Western correspondent. Yeah, uh, he was Galway. So yeah, Jim covered, you know, Galway, Mayo, Roscommon, uh, and that was quite big territory. And then I looked after the Northwest, Sligo, Leitrim, Donegal, Derry. And yeah. what were then the neglected counties and the unclaimed counties of Cavan and Monaghan as well. Yeah. I used to go there every so often. So the it was like a barren wilderness that Cavan. Yeah, it was like a border border brief. Yeah, actually, Theresa Mannion was chatting to me for the podcast and she was to say, but, you know, working for RTE in that part of the country, you're kind of a road warrior a lot of the time, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, and like Theresa was a dub. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, Dave O'Connell, you know, uh, the uh, famous uh, Connacht tri Tribune man, great uh, West of Ireland man. So she she came west. But mm. in Fahey's case, Fahey was of the parish, and as I was from, you know, from Sligo. Yeah. So they were great years um, because in many ways you were you were the representative trying to get, say, the, the stories from the region on air. Now, it was great if it was a positive story, in, but it was a harder uh, task when, you know, it wasn't a positive story, yeah. something closing down or, you know, something going wrong. Uh, but it was um, it it was fantastic fun. Uh, mm -hmm. Like it, it wasn't a job at all, Connor. That's the story yeah. of the journey. It's a way of life. It's and, you know, you, you it's a lifestyle feel, rather than a job. Feel you're yeah. fortunate doing it all the time. And, you know, from from the point of view of kind of the couch in South Dublin, um, people would have been aware of you in RTE, obviously, as a Western correspondent. Uh, but is it, it fair to say it felt like a much bigger job, a much more, uh, well, grown-ups, the wrong word. But you went to Europe and became Europe correspondent. Um, so so, well, so now your, your, your commentary is on a much bigger stage. Yeah, that, that was a huge change. Like, uh, I had never actually worked in Donnybrook. Uh, so to go from... The northwest to Brussels. Um, it was huge gear shift. I was I was really fortunate, and I'd say it's part of the reason why they appointed me. Eamon Lawler had been in Brussels for years, and mm -hmm. he was coming back to become a newscaster and a very accomplished one. Yeah. Uh, so um, it was a a twelve month appointment to begin with. Um, but um, I think the fact that Ray McSharry was the EU Agriculture Commissioner. Ah, uh, yeah. Kind of a knife. hard person to get to know. But because yeah. he was from Sligo, I think mm. that was probably one of the reasons why they said, well, maybe Tommy will be able to get some contact and some traction there. And McSharry at that stage was setting out to try to reform the common agricultural policy. Yeah. So he turned out to be uh, a wonderful contact. And if you have 
one really good source in high places, it's a mm. very good start. So I think well, Ray McSharry was yeah. definitely in high places. I mean, people will recall he led the GATT negotiations for Europe, yeah. and uh, yeah. you know he was a highly, highly um, in, in, impactful commissioner. Do you know your time in in Brussels, Tommy? It, it began in 1989, which um, yeah, yeah. You know, if you had to stick a pin in history, uh, and that obviously is the year the Berlin Wall came down. That's right, and and all that change began to take place. I actually missed the fall of the Berlin Wall. I was covering the Greek elections uh, <laughs> at the time the Berlin Wall fell. So I was in the wrong place at, at the wrong time. But I, I caught up on things. Um, soon after I came back, mm. I went to Czechoslovakia, to Prague for the Velvet Revolution. Uh, and I remember driving down, actually drove, Connor, with your background, you'd be interested <laughs> in the story we drove from... Uh, Brussels, uh, across the down through Germany and across the border, and there were border guards yeah. uh, into Prague. And a week later, when we were returning, the border guards were gone. Wow. The whole regime had collapsed. So that was a fantastic time. So yeah, you I was there. were witness to history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was in Brussels for for those years when the Berlin Wall fell, when Germany was reunited. Sometimes I think we, we forget that a lot of the big decisions about German reunification were taken during Ireland's presidency of the EU. But uh, sometimes I meet German diplomats and they'd be very quick to remind you that, of the significance Ireland had during that yeah. period. We're just a small country. We were in the chair at the time those decisions were taken. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie? Doro, make friends with innovation. They were great years because it was the expansion of Europe. Uh, you know, mm. Ireland. They was were getting... very, they were very, very um, now. You know, ult ultimately it was unfulfilled. But the, I guess the years between the nineties, the years between the fall of the wall and nine eleven, if you like, sort of felt as if um, you know there was a whole new paradigm on the globe, and we were all going to march together to prosperity. Um, see, it seems very naive now, but it felt like it, didn't it? Well, I don't know if, if it's naive or I don't think if if it was as bleak, if, if it ended bleakly, because they were the years when Ireland changed dramatically. Like, oh, yeah. From the years of structural funds. They were the years when, you know, we took our place uh, really as a member of the European Union. Um, there were the years when, say, the corporation tax regime was put in place. There mm -hmm. were the years when we moved from being a very big beneficiary in terms of EU transfers to where we are now, where we're, we're now contributors. Contributor. Yeah. And, and I actually think a lot of, say, um, the foundations of the modern, prosperous Irish state that they were laid during that, that decade. Yeah. Do you know, I would agree with that analysis, Tommy. And the other thing, which we're obviously going to come to, but maybe we'll just mention it and park it for the moment. Obviously, that was the year when the troubles, in inverted commas, officially ended um, dur dur during the, the 90s as well with the Good Friday Agreement. Um, but back, back in Europe, or 
back for Ireland. Um, I agree that the, the Celt- it roared into the Celtic tiger, but actually we became the model country uh, for the European Union. Um, you know, to, if you wanted to sell the European Union in expansion to the to the new, newer countries of the East, um, Ireland was the model you could point to. Look, this is what can happen if you stick to the rules, be European in a proper European way, you will prosper. And we really, we've been held up as a model since. Well, yeah, and I remember there was, there was a, a principle called absorption. It, it, it's mm. interesting because how you make use of the transfers you receive. And uh, you had four countries who were, say, the biggest net. We used to call them the pauper's club. Um, Greece, uh, Italy, Portugal uh, and ourselves. Greece, uh, Portugal, Spain and ourselves, not the yeah, Italians. Not the Italians uh, at that time. And um, we were probably the most successful. Uh, in terms of the change in in uh, the rise in our GDP and the way we were, we were very good at using structured funds. Well, you know, we 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 slag ourselves about the value we got from Motorway, whether we did this, that, and the other, whether we got our CPOs correct, or whether we overpaid. But in fact, when structural funds were spent, I mean, you, there were jokes in Europe that if you give the Irish the money to build a motorway, you can go back, and the motorway will be there. <laughs> if you um, you know, when you pour it into uh, countries like um, Greece and Portugal. Now, listen, I don't want to be unfair to those countries, but uh, that was the perception at the time that they just weren't as efficient um, at, at using the money. Yeah, uh, the Greeks had a, had a bad reputation. Uh, if you look at, say, the way Spain has used European investment since mm-hmm. Spain. Use it well. Uh, yeah, uh, Portuguese is too. Uh, but one of the, one of the interesting, say, uh, threads from that, period as well was I saw how our relationship with the UK actually prospered mm-hmm. uh, during those years because we re- we realized how much we had in common and there was a lot of say a practical friendship um, that yeah. developed during that period and when you were talking about uh, the years say the troubles ended and I think that say the relationship between say the likes of John Major and Albert Reynolds as finance ministers around the European yeah. table uh, and say the deeper relationships uh, between our countries, I think they thrived uh, in that European space because yes. we were quite supportive of each other. We spoke the same language. Uh, and I think we managed, as well as say, we stopped being the island behind the bigger island. We were taking yeah. our place on the European stage. But we also realized that the natural kind of kinship that was there between ourselves and, and, and the UK and you'd yeah. often see at summits in those times, uh, Connor, how, okay, to do the European business, and then there'd be the inevitable bilateral between, say, the Taoiseach and the British Prime Minister yeah. when Northern Ireland was teased out. And I think Europe was a very useful space. I think uh, I think it was. And, you know, a, a, a more confident republic was perhaps better able to stand on its own feet and feel more like an equal of Britain. But the other dynamic that people will kind of forget, because you think about um, Britain in the European Union and you associate it with um, resistance and Brexiteers and bad rhetoric and all that. But very frequently in the European Union itself, the British were the voice of reason and um, the British were the voice of of moderation. They, they were a, a check on the. Um, federalist urges of some French and Germans um, and, and they, they, we were found ourselves in natural alliance with them and they with us um, and we really did you know partner it, well it, in there didn't we 
in in some respects, uh, but I think it's a bit of a contradiction of the British, really, that they were the champions of the single market. Mm. Um, you know, Thatcher was very much for the single market. And I'm now, an architect on Thatcher. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When you look at what say, Brexit has done to them, it has say, taken them out of that European single market. Um, I also f- feel that we were traveling in different directions in some respects. When you look back on it now, like for us, Europe was liberating. It gave us that stage in which to perform. Um, and our country began to prosper during that time. Unfortunately for the British, they went, say, from being a major world power to losing influence during, say, the last century. So mm. certainly from the European Union years onwards, our trajectory, it was improving all the time. Yeah, uh, from, a low, from a low low base, let it be said. Yeah. yeah. But there is bound uh, to be that psychological effect on a country because one, you know, like the Spanish before them, like the French before them, you know, perhaps like the Americans now, um, you know, Britain just inevitably moved from a, a, a space of dominance down to just being part of the pack with everybody else. And that is a psychological adjustment for them as a nation. We, on the other hand, emerged, you know, essentially from from, from poverty, uh, to step up and become a modern European nation. So for us, we're bound to feel more positive about that. Yeah, I remember Anne Casson coming over uh, one time uh, and she made a programme about the Erasmus scheme that was mm-hmm. there for students, you know, third level colleges. Uh, and like that was such an enlightening experience for so many young or level Irish students that you could go to, you could spend a term or a year in in, an EU country. Um, And I think that was part of, say, of the flowering of the new Ireland. We were given that opportunity and we we grasped it. Another thing worth worth noting from that period, and it's it's one of the differences that emerged, we were razor keen to become part of the European single currency. Yes. Uh, and, you know, we had to get ourselves. I remember Rory Quayne was finance minister for a lot of that period. And we had to, you know, get our debt GDP radio, ratio mm-hmm. into a certain shape and so on. And of course, when push came to shove, the British didn't want to be part of it. They wanted to keep their sterling uh, separate. And yeah. that was another big parting of the waves during those years. And, you know, you could make both rational and emotional arguments on both sides of that debate. And people did. Um, but I think on, in both Ireland and the UK, it was the emotional side that won out. Uh, Ireland wanted to be part of something bigger and feel less vulnerable and exposed and alone. Um, Britain wanted to remain Britain um, to some degree aloof from the continent. And uh, emotionally, I think those both arguments were the ones that won in the respective islands. Yeah, it, I see it here. I see the outworking of it in a place like Little Bergerac, when you come to the airport here and you arrive with your Irish passport mm. uh, and, you know, job sound. Whereas if you come with a British passport, now you're here for a limited amount of time. You can only spend a certain number of days, say, on the European continent uh, and uh, how things have changed for them, you know. As poor Britain, I mean, it, 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 it's it's self-inflicted, but um, you you hope they re-emerge. Um, and you then parked your European career and you moved to um, Belfast in, what was the year? Was it, it was 2001 uh, or so, Tommy? Yeah, I came back in 2001. 
Um, and it you, was you, three you, years you, after uh, the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah. Um, and I suppose I had always retained an interest in uh, North-South relations because I'd worked in Derry for, you know, mm. some of my time as Northwestern correspondent. And I used to see the way things uh, were playing out, say, uh, on the European stage. And um, there was part of me that was really interested to see whether, say, Jacques Delors' theory of um, if you spread the investment and if you bring prosperity uh, and if whether that can act as a positive force. And I was really interested to see whether Ireland could become the EU's poster boy or poster yeah. guard in terms of peacemaking. So that was part of the attraction of going back. And what's your, I mean, you, you can't give a brief take on, on, on you know, 20 years of history in, in Northern Ireland. Um, but but does it, how, how does it feel to you that it progressed there? Because to me, it just feels like yet another missed opportunity and, 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 and Northern Ireland across the piece feels like it is stagnated and calcified and um, uh, while you know we we have an absence of uh, conflict in the way that conflict existed before the ceasefires but it still feels like a, an, an absence of conflict rather than the presence of peace doesn't it um i have a different view I, i'm an optimist by nature um good we need them uh, um i am um, i remember <clears throat> what it was like when people were being killed <clears throat> and mm. i remember the just the terrible weight of and that came from hearing of one more bombing or one more shooting and the inevitability of a, a, of a reaction to that and more life being taken needlessly. Uh, so <clears throat> I'm still basking in the relief and the delight that the killing has stopped. Yeah. That's, we, that's we, we, shouldn't, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't forget where we came from. And, and, that's and a just miracle of our time. And yeah. I'm 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 thrilled to be alive in these times because I think we're seeing the outworking uh, of history at play. Like I, we saw um, Leo Varadkar and uh, Michal Martin go to Bail uh, last year. Uh, and we're going to see in our lifetime, if we live for the next five to ten years, we're going to see what happens with Sinn Féin, who were another mm. party. Uh, you know, to the 1916, to the War of Independence, the Civil War. And we're going to see how that works out uh, in, say, Irish politics. And I think we're also going to see whether unionists can find some form of reconciliation with the idea of a federal Ireland or the neighbours mm. next door. Mm. Uh, so we're going to have to I see an attempt and, through politics and democracy to work that out. Well, do you know what I hope we may have learned is that uh, it, it doesn't get sorted out any other way. It must be dialogue and politics. Um, and, 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 and hopefully that lesson learned. It still feels like a deeply divided place to me, Tommy, now, and your, your expertise is far, far deeper than mine. But there's the obvious um, nationalist versus unionist cleavage or, or conflict but to my mind even within unionism there are, are the broad church of those that might be pro-union you 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 have a, a relatively affluent um unionist population that uh, can thrive in the jurisdiction and might even ultimately be able to make peace 
uh, with uh, some sort of federal Ireland. And then you have this, to my mind, neglected group, um, you know, you broadly term loyalist, but these are working class or more generally not working classes that, that have been really neglected by um, their own leaders. Well, yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you peel off a few more layers and you realise that for generations, uh, young loyalists didn't really need education um, as a means. Went straight into Harland and Wolf. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then when that faded, there was nothing, there was no proper solution put in place for them. Um, and I think it's it's one of the one of the real challenges, and it's an important challenge uh, to see how that underclass uh, is facilitated and how it's helped. Uh, I, I I loved the phrase of um, the new U.S. envoy to Northern Ireland, Joseph Kennedy. Um, he said that, you know, the last decade or so was about parity of esteem. Yeah. But the next one has to be about parity of opportunity. Uh, yeah. like, I'd go along with that. Uh, and I think it's going to be one of the challenges uh, for Ireland, North and South, and indeed for the British government, to see how you actually give loyalists a sense that they have a stake in society. Um, because, you know, you look back at the John Hume and the mm. uh, Eamon McCann generation uh, and how when there was nothing really for for poor nationalists that education provided the escape route we saw it connor in our own country like yourself yourself it was a long yeah it was a long term plan but but free third level in the republic of ireland and the the push for education in national nationalist communities in northern ireland it it, it took 20 years but the payback was spectacular when it arrived yeah. Um, we have I, I to, think that, something like that has to happen for the loyalist population. Yeah, and and you know, curiously, for a long time, I despaired about Brexit uh, because I thought it was just the wrong decision, especially mm. for Northern Ireland. And I felt that the impact on, say, on on the Good Friday Agreement, which had a European dimension, that wasn't taken into account by English nationalism. Yeah. But for the first time, uh, I'm beginning to see that there might be something good that could come of it, because I think this best of both worlds solution for Northern mm. Ireland, where they've access to European as well as British markets uh, and ourselves next door uh, as this fully fledged EU country. I think there's a great opportunity there for the island, north and south in this new space. I think Northern yeah. Ireland, it, it could, instead of suffering because of its from its uniqueness, I think it could it could actually benefit. So I I think there's a real possibility there. It, uh, it, it will take vision on the on the unionist stroke loyalist side, but there's no doubt that, that 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 prosperity is a fantastic enabler for peace. Um, <laughs> and and if prosperity can flow into Northern Ireland, many many things become possible. Um, Tommy, I, I wanted to, because while all this was going on um, and your sort of grandstand view of the world and the way events are shaping, in your own personal life, um, you, you have been dealing with uh, really serious cancer for 
30 years is extraordinary, mm-hmm. isn't it? Um, t- tell, tell us briefly, I don't want you to dwell on your cancer, but you were a young man with a small child and, and, and a pregnant wife when, when that diagnosis came, weren't you? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> well, Kira, Kira had, we brought Moy into the world uh, nine months beforehand. So, yeah, I was diagnosed with this out of the blue in, in Belgium, uh, this condition called neuroendocrine tumours. They're hormone-producing tumours. Mm. Uh, it's actually the disease that killed Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. Oh, right. uh, so, uh, yeah, I've been living with that disease. Uh, I'll be 30 years diagnosed in January of, of next year. So um, I take an injection uh, every 28 days intramuscular injection it's due tomorrow uh, right. and i've had lots of bits and pieces done over the years lots of uh procedures uh and i i was fortunate that, that i i went to sweden for treatment first when there were mm. some uh some procedures that weren't available in ireland now we have a center of excellence in saint vincent's and i'm very actively involved with our patients group there we still send some of our people abroad for procedures but um uh, this is a strange kind of a thing to say, but it's been a very positive influence in my life. It's been kind of liberating uh, because it has given me perspective on what's important and on mortality. Uh, and um, I can say to you now um, on something like this, that will be there to be looked at in years to come. Huh. Um, like I'm owed nothing. Um, these are real bonus years. I've been very, very lucky. Uh, wow. Our daughter is is thirty now. With uh, a a son who's twenty six, and um, I'm just one of the lucky ones. And wow. the great thing about my my disease is it is it helps me to put other issues in context. Um, and um, there are a lot of times when I feel it's a gift in that respect that it has given me some ballast uh, wow. and allowed me to say to say, well, things could be worse, or look at how lucky you are. Or also, it has just allowed me, constantly reminds me that we're all just passing through. We're all just passing through. Tommy, it's an extraordinary perspective to have on life. And uh, we, we could chat for hours, but the, the, the lads would give out to me. <laughs> um, you're, you're in France at the moment. You'll make it back to Sligo soon, I hope. And um, it would be oh, fantastic yeah. to run into you in the West of Ireland someday and, and continue the chat. Well, uh, I know you have um, roots over and family links to Enniscrone, a uh, lovely part of the world. And... Um, it's lovely to see you too. Enjoy your your busy retirement and um and your fantastic perspective on life. Um and Tommy, you're an absolute gentleman. Thanks very much for the chat. Thanks, Connor. So that's Tommy Gorman. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Let me know if you have any thoughts on the podcasts. Get in touch on connorfalkner at gmail.com. Do remember that you can access the full Driving Life archive of previous episodes at seniortimes.ie. Thanks again to Doro Mobile Phones and to Expressway Buses. And we're done. Drive safely, live happily, and come back and see us again. On will phone poke a new on will canapi no fum nis orjoet.
Nis Eskalehusaj, Faker Nafon Intakatagwin, Ancho, Eggdaro, and Von Klishte is Dani, Gidi Gohan Lahai Glina, August Taskana, Tarod Egan, Gogachtana, Tanismo Olis, Egg, Daro.com.
An will phone poke a nuawet, an will knappy no fum nis orjawet. Nis eskalehusaj, faker na phone intuk a tall gwin, an sho, egg daro. An von klishte is dani, gidi gohan la hai glina, agus taskina. Tarod egen, gogachtina. Tanismo olis, egg, daro.com.